We turn to the Lord's Gospel today, and our Gospel reading is taken from John chapter 4, reading verses 1 to 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come here again to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have, he's not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes... He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and she went away into town and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father God, with our Bibles open before us, we submit to the authority of your word. We say with Samuel of old, speak, O Lord, for your servant listens. Lord, do now work by your Holy Spirit, which only you can do. Deepen our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a great passage today. I have to admit, I'm tempted at times to be swallowed up by John. He's too deep. The waters are too deep. You swim a ways out from shore, and you look at the shoreline, and it starts to get a wee bit overwhelming. But I hope today, with that kind of due regard for John, I hope that I can say something that will add clarity uh, to our reading of John 4. This idea that we have in our text today, this worship in spirit and truth that we read, it's an idea that can be easily mishandled. And it's been often mishandled uh, in the church and laden with all kinds of meaning that the phrase was never meant to carry or to express. Now today we're not going to plumb those depths. We can't do that entirely. But I'd like to provide a good beginning that will help us to understand this significant narrative uh, before us. Now the passage begins as a striking moment of evangelism. Jesus is sharing the gospel with this woman. And she's surprised by his attention. Jews and Samaritans were enemies. The Samaritans were long estranged from Jewish identity. They had intermixed with many other cultures, and they had set up their own mount of worship, Mount Gerizim. Gerizim stood in opposition to Mount Zion, the very mount in which God had identified his holy purpose and presence and will. It was his holy hill, the only place that he had demanded his holy worship to take place and to be conducted. And so the Samaritan religion was in so many ways an outright rejection of the worship of Yahweh, and years and years of ill will had been bred and festered between these two peoples. In fact, John tells us plainly in verse 9 that Jews had no dealings whatsoever with Samaritans. And Jesus comes now to speak with her, and she's surprised. And so it's important today to recognize from the beginning that we have this idea of the kingdom spilling over. The kingdom spilling out. The kingdom crossing over and going across borders. The kingdom of God no longer limited. No longer confined, but extending. It's a very important idea here in in John 4. But the gospel... The good news that Jesus brings to this woman isn't met with an immediate reception and understanding. Jesus tries to share the gospel with her, but she's not listening. She's not getting it. Something, something very significant stands in the way. Jesus speaks to this woman of supernatural things. He talks about the gift of God, the living water. 
He talks about eternal life, a spring of water that surges up from within and spills over a person. He talks about the limitations of the natural. How nature quenches desire only to lead to more dissatisfaction. This water, he says, that you're drinking will only go so far. This water will leave you thirsty still, he says. And that, by the way, should be our brand. That should be what we inscribe, inscribe on every use of the creature. This will make me thirsty again. Every time we use it, whatever creature it may be, be it food, drink, or or sex, this, though God's gift, will make me thirsty again. That's the nature of the creature. Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman of supernatural things, but she only hears natural. She takes his supernatural ideas and she brings them down into her limited natural worldview. I want this water that you're talking about, she says. Let me have it. I want the water that will do away with my need to come physically to this well. I don't want to do that anymore. Give me the water, she says, that will solve my physical thirst. And so we see that she can't truly comprehend her spiritual thirst. And this is the second important idea here. Not only that the kingdom of God is extending past borders, but that the kingdom of God is something inherently supernatural, something inherently spiritual. But there's an impasse here now. Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms, with spiritual vocabulary, and she can only hear and perceive the natural. It's memories of John chapter 3 where Jesus is speaking of spiritual realities, great and marvelous things, being born from above. He says in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus is stuck on these natural categories. How on earth does a man being born re-enter the womb, he says. And so there's an impasse with the Samaritan woman. Something standing in the way that makes nature loom large and supernature non-existent for her. And that, by the way, is always the problem. Biblically speaking and practically speaking, that is always the problem. Nature looming large, supernature fading into the background. This is positivism. This is humanism. This is materialism. This is a whole lot of isms. This is the history of the human race. This is the fundamental problem when the thick, heavy, weighty thought of God and the incomparable presence of God no longer dominates and rules our lives. It becomes something altogether passing with us. Something altogether indifferent to us. God becomes a light thing. And you'll find as you recount the shaping and the making of men and women of God across scriptures, there's always this moment of encounter with the godness of God where the reality of supernature overshadows the natural world and the man or the woman is brought to the understanding that the supernatural reality of God is so much more real 
and so much more thick and weighty and important than this natural world which is constantly beckoning us, beckoning our five senses. Whether it's Abraham and the horror of great darkness, or Jacob and the awesomeness of Bethel, or Moses and the burning bush, or Elijah and the still small voice, or Paul at noon on the road to Damascus, suddenly overwhelmed and overshadowed by a light blazing more bright than the sun. In all these cases, God shapes and chooses and makes His chosen ones with an overpowering awareness that He is the nature. It is above, it is around, it is beneath, and he compels them to know that everything exists only because he does. He is the beginning, and he is the middle, and he is the end. From him are all things, and in him are all things, and to him are all things. And God works His grace in us so that we can be about Him. And so the key note of the book of Acts is awe. And awe fell on every soul, we read, as the Spirit of God takes them up to know God. And yet things get in the way, don't they? We can become so quickly dull and so very insensitive that the thought of God no longer thrills us, and religious awe is no longer an experience that can truly define us in our day-to-day living. While this woman in Samaria, she can't perceive the supernatural, something stands in the way of this. And so Jesus now takes aim. And instead of continuing to speak about these supernatural realities, Jesus now aims at that thing which is keeping her in the dark. He now aims at this woman's sin. He asks her in verse 16 to call her husband. Now you'll notice up to this point, the woman's been fairly chatty, fairly garrulous. But now all her words dry up. Her answer is very terse now. I have no husband. She says. You see, the arrow has hit the mark. She feels it. And the brevity of her answer indicates her shame. But she does speak the truth in measure. She doesn't give the whole truth, but the woman gives some. And Jesus commends her two times for speaking the truth. You are right in verse 17. And what you have said is true in verse 18. You see, she could have said otherwise. She could have attempted to deceive the men by saying, oh, I can't call my husband, I'm sorry, he's away on business. It would have been so very easy to do. And I'm sure so very tempting for her to do so. But there's something about this man, Jesus, that compels her to open up her heart even partially to the truth of what was going on in her life. And Jesus now takes that partial revelation and he he expands it. He pulls it open. He now tells her, in her own words, everything she's ever done. Verse 29. And it's not the good stuff. He tells her her marital history. 
And more importantly, Jesus highlights her failures and he exposes this woman's sins. You are currently, he says, living in a state of disobedience against God. This man with whom you are living, he's not your husband. You've rejected God, he says. (laughs) Is it any wonder that you can't hear me? Is it any wonder that you can't hear what I'm saying to you? And so the one who searches hearts, the one who is acquainted with all of our ways, now sits beside this woman at the well, and he knows her. And he knows her as the one who knitted her together in her mother's womb. He knows all of her days that were recorded in his book before she was even formed. And now he searches her. And he knows her to see if there be any grievous way in her so that he can lead her in the way everlasting. And you and I should be glad that Jesus does the same with us. He's involved with us. He doesn't sit by strange and aloof, but he comes near to us. He comes to the well of our hearts to test us, and he shows us those things that keep us from the knowledge of God. And we might try to hide them from him, speaking partial truths in our prayers, but the Lord has sure ways of finding them out and bringing them to our attention. I have no doubt in my mind that when she said, I have no husband, she hoped that her partial confession to the Lord would end his line of inquiry. That's it. But Jesus goes on faithfully. And he goes on leveling with her, and he probes her life with what I don't doubt was painful detail. He identifies all five marriages. And the sense here is that these are failed marriages. If they weren't, she could have said, I'm a widow. Or Jesus could have said, five husbands of yours have died. But the phrase here, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, implies consecutive failure of some sort. It's all a definite moral collapse in this woman's life. Which is all to say Jesus isn't wearing kid gloves here. He's bringing to light profound moral failure in this woman. And this is the Lord's pattern. It's always repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. It's recognition of sin before its recognition of grace, its humbling of soul, before its elevation in spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised when the Lord deals with us in this way. It's his kindness to do so. Insight into our poverty, writes Karl Barth, seeing our nakedness and ruin through the fall, compels us to ask after God. It's good to be humble before the Lord. It's good to be made to see the tangle of our lives. Some mornings, Meredith allows me to comb her hair. And I sit behind her with her brush, and I go through her hair, and what a tangle. What a work. What a labor to go through that hair and get rid of all those knots and all those tangles. And sometimes I can see her wince as I tug and as I pull. And Jesus faithfully combs through the mess of our lives and it can hurt as he tugs at us and he pulls, but it's good 
And it's right. And it's the best place to be. Well, it's interesting then that what now seems like a sudden change in the subject matter of the conversation, as a kind of an evasion of Jesus' searching eyes, let's stop talking about husbands here. Let's stop talking about my marriage. And now let's talk about the best place to worship is not evasion at all, but it's evidence of the fruit of her godly sorrow. Her heart has been pierced with an arrow of the Lord's conviction, and she recognizes now a man of God in her midst. And having been convicted of her sin, her heart and her mind are now open to the topic of worship. You see, she's moved from the light and the inconsequential chatter of verses 11 to 15 to something very consequential and profound indeed. What is the best way to worship God? Please tell me, how do I worship God, she says. Insight into her poverty has compelled her to ask after God, in Bart's words. Now she's thinking about God. And this is exactly the whole point of what Jesus works to do in our lives. This is the whole point of the work of repentance and godly sorrow, the searching in uncomfortable light of Jesus who comes with his swinging lantern into our hearts and he maps the labyrinth of our ways to find out anything that might grievously turn us from him. It's all meant to bring us to the profound awareness of God, to bring us to the way everlasting. Well, now to go on to discuss the importance of worship in spirit and truth. Well, that's a whole other sermon. At least it's a whole other sermon for me. But I want you today to notice briefly three things. First of all, when he says spirit and truth in relationship to Jerusalem, Jesus here is speaking about extension. The glory of Yahweh he says, is no longer limited to Jerusalem. The whole earth now is to be filled with his glory. <laughs> Those two mule loads of earth that Naaman had taken back to his homeland of Syria typifies and exemplifies what's happening. The kingdom of God now is going beyond, beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole wide world. The kingdom of God is pushing out. And so we remember at Christ Church, every Sunday, the kingdom of God is for going out. Secondly, the attribute of spirit which Jesus talks about is that essential and supernatural quality of God to which the woman at the beginning of this narrative was imperceptible. The reality that God satisfies. The reality of God who is in, with, and under all that we see. The only reality in this life that gives meaning to anything. And the one reality that ultimately demands our chief affections and our chief loyalties. This spiritual, supernatural reality is the only reality that will ever ultimately satisfy us Everything else leaves us thirsty still. Spirit, God, reality. And thirdly, the experience of truth that Jesus mentions corresponds to the willingness to walk in the light. 
and the woman's experience of being exposed within that light. No one, Jesus says, can come to God and worship God unless they acknowledge first and foremost who he claims to be and unless they are willing to be exposed. That is, unless they're willing to be known and seen for what they really are. We see this in the previous chapter in John chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says that the wicked hate the light. Why do they hate the light? They hate the light lest their works, their deeds, their thoughts, their sin. Jesus says, lest these things be exposed. And so they avoid the light. And they avoid the truth. But those, Jesus says, who do what is true, again, John chapter 3, those, Jesus says, who walk in the truth, these are the ones who are willing to step into the light, who are willing to be known by God, exposed by God, by the searching light of Jesus. And I pray today, my dear brothers and sisters, that we might all find ourselves in that place today, because it is God, we read, who seeks these kinds of worshipers. And what God seeks, God finds. And so I want to ask you today simply to open your heart to the Lord today. And would you please pray with me these simple words. Search me and know me, O God. Examine me and know my thoughts. And see, O Lord, if there be any wicked way in me. And would you lead me in the way everlasting? For Christ's sake. Amen.